Hello and welcome to another episode of SoFly. It's the end of October. Uh, my name is Mitch. We've got Gab here. Hey, everyone. And we've got Yelma. Hey, everyone. And uh, today we're recording a super special episode. We've been excited to record for a while now. Um, we're extremely lucky to have uh, a fly fishing legend on the show, uh, an ambassador for Rio, one of the greatest companies, and uh, and an absolute spay master, Simon Gosworth. How's it going? Uh, well, that, with that intro, geez, I need to pay you a few hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so Thank much for coming for on the nonsense. show. Yeah, I mean, I'm just sitting here, otherwise I'll be fishing, and uh, yeah. so, you know. This is better than fishing, right? <laughs> yeah, true, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I guess uh, we're going to jump into it. We're going to talk a little bit about um, about where you started fishing, and we're going to talk about line design and also space stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, first, it's like I said, it's the end of October, and um, and we've been wanting to record the show for a little while now, and uh, uh, it's a good – it comes at a perfect time because it's actually steelhead season here in uh, Ontario. We're all in Toronto right now, and steelhead season is just kicking off. Nice. Yeah, Great Lakes Steelhead, so we're all pretty excited. Yep, it's Pacific Northwest Steelhead too. Columbia Tribbles, anyway, particularly the uh, the uh, Alibit Peninsula rivers are a bit devoid of fish at the moment, but uh, there's a few around here as well, so it's a good time, as you say. Oh, no, it's wicked. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I imagine that West is starting to kick off, so that's exciting. So um, let's just start with, uh, yeah, where did you, how did you get into the sport? And um, can you just tell us a little bit about about yourself and, and your fly fishing path so far? Um, well, that's pretty easy. My dad's fault, totally. Uh, he he introduced me to this fly fishing sport back in 72, I think it was. He, uh, he started a fly fishing school, so he was a fly fishing instructor. He had a school in England, and that was his job, was teaching people to fly fish. And I guess when he discovered that I showed some uh, interest in fly fishing at eight, he said, hey, son, here's a fly rod. I'm going to teach you how to fly fish. And uh, so he did. So that was, we actually had a pond in our back garden, more of a lake, I guess, a half acre sort of pond, lake, whatever size you'd call that. Um, full of, well, originally, long story, but it was, it had newts in it, and then we had goldfish in it, and then we had trout in it. And once we got trout in it, he said, uh, you know, this is a great chance. You've got trout in your back garden. Go out and catch them on your fly. So that's how I started. <laughs> that's amazing. Wow, you guys had a pond in your backyard. That's so awesome. Yeah, yeah. He had to, uh, he, before he started teaching fly fishing, he commercially sold goldfish <laughs> out <laughs> of this pond. Hardy British bred goldfish. None of these Chinese things that died, apparently, the moment they had a, a whiff of cold air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was selling... Uh, yeah, so he's selling these outdoor bred goldfish, and wow. he was paying my sister and myself one pence, one penny, yeah. uh, a, a goldfish to catch when we were like six years old. So we'd catch them on bread, and um, I guess we went on strike because I think he was selling them for about a pound each. He was making like this huge markup, and my, my sister and I said, "Well, we want two p a fish." Um, <laughs> and he wouldn't have it, so he just netted the entire lot, sold them to some commercial goldfish pond, and stuck in trout. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there we go. That's amazing. Oh my god. So when you when you started fishing on it, what, like was it an immediate love for for fly fishing or like how did that with, start? With fly fishing? Yeah, with fly fishing, yeah. Yeah, I think it was an immediate love. I mean, I can't remember. I I mean, I know that uh I loved going out and catching fish and casting and um I'm pretty certain I loved it at the age of uh, 8 when I started fly fishing from the get-go. I I can't recall having a tantrum and saying, "I don't want to do this." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But fishing for goldfish. So I guess yeah. Fishing for goldfish would have been an interesting Yeah. Thing. <laughs> well, that was with just bread paste, you know. I'd yeah, get yeah. my schoolmates to come around after school and would have fishing competitions, and I would I would keep all their goldfish and, and sell them to my dad for a penny each. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> the, does, does the goldfish uh, get pretty big? Um, they were all around a sort of a four to six, eight-inch size, I guess, up to about eight inches. So, yeah, pretty decent size, not these little two-inch, one-inch goldfish things from the fair. Oh, that's awesome. So where did you go from there then? I guess you started fishing on the pond, and then how did sort of uh, your love for fly fishing progress from there? Well, we moved. So he started that school in 72, and it was pretty successful. And where we were uh, living at the time, which is kind of the home counties of England, near towards the London area, there's only lakes. And so when my dad wanted to expand the school, he decided to move to what's called the West Country in England. It's the far southwest peninsula, a county called Devon. And in Devon, you've got a lot of rivers there. Uh, so you had the option of adding river trout and sea trout and salmon to the to what he could offer as an instructor. 
And so he moved from these day lesson type um, plans where people would drive over from London for these lessons to a remote area of England where people would stay and he bought a big Georgian house and people stayed in the Georgian house and he'd offer these three and five and seven day courses on fly fishing. And so it become a much more of an intense um, introduction, if you like, into fly fishing because there was fly fishermen all around seven days a week and there was trout and rivers to catch and sea trout and salmon to catch. And so it was just a natural progression for me. I still enjoyed it. So it was just a natural progression for me to go out and, and indulge in uh, trying to catch all these other species. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and so and so when did you get into fly, um, cha- like being in fly championships and actually fishing competitively? Well, that's—I guess I was about fourteen. I think there was a. Um, do you know what Jim Carner is? Have you ever heard of? You know what Jim Carner is? Do you have those in Canada? No, no, no. no. Okay, so there was a Jim Carner. It's—it's it's kind of a country fair, mostly horse orientated, okay. for just kind of outdoor people. Um, there was a Jim Carner country fair type thing in Devon where we lived, and my dad took us along, and there was a, a fly casting competition there. Um, and I entered it. He said, oh, you should enter this thing, son. And I entered this, this casting competition and, um, somehow I won it. And, um, I was, the prize was a bottle of whiskey. (laughs) My dad wouldn't let me keep that at 14. (laughs) (laughs) So he traded that for a a brand new fly rod, a carbon fiber fly rod. So it was my first carbon fiber fly rod was, uh, was my prize and he kept the whiskey. (laughs) So that's how I got into it. And funnily enough, the guy who was running it, um, Coincidentally, he was the father of the current British casting champion, wow. and uh, the the father's name was Howard Howard Tonkin, and the son was Alan Tonkin. And Howard said, "Oh, this guy could do pretty good if we give him some tournament casting uh, pointers." So he kind of helped out and taught my dad and taught me, and and that was really how I got into competition casting. Oh, right on. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I remember watching your. So I I learned to spay fish uh, probably about ten years ago now, and I remember watching your. Uh, some of your Rio videos on how to spay cast. Um, obviously, oh, yeah. yeah, spay fishing over the years obviously has become really popular. When did you get into spay casting and spay fishing? Well, that was, I mean, that's kind of part of it being a British, Brit, Brit, I mean, that's everyone in Britain, if you go salmon fishing, you spay fish and you use a two-handed salmon rod or spay rod and you make spay cast. That just goes with the territory has since the 1800s. So um, my mum and dad separated when I was, I don't know, four or five or something. My mum moved up to to Scotland, uh, where she's from, and she bought a house with her, uh, my stepfather, in Granton on Spey, which is there on the Spey. And so I would go out for summer holidays, of course, and fish, and 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 you just you just fish a two-handed, fifteen-foot salmon rod, and you make spay cast. So that was just part of going up to Scotland and fishing there. And with my dad's fly fishing school, it was an important part of teaching. We taught people how to spay cast. So again, he kind of embraced the spay casting game and got into that. And and um, developed spay casting techniques and, and tuitional techniques. Do, do you have your own sort of Simon Gosworth technique at all? Like, is there is there? No, something? no. <laughs> Did you develop anything that's unique to you? <laughs> um, bits and pieces. I mean, everybody has a style, and I, you know, when I was learning to teach and and learning to cast, I was like most kids are that 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 age and that kind of mentality is that your way is the only way so I would try and teach people my way and, and say hey you're doing it the wrong way your left hand's up your right hand's up your thumb sticking out your you know, whatever it was and you soon learn that you're a fool to, to try and teach people the way you have to exactly. understand that there's the physics of the cast and that's what you pass it on so um, my dad came up with uh, spade casting was a relatively new instructional area I guess in the 70s and early 80s when he was teaching spade casting so he developed a bunch of terminologies that he used to teach and I used because he taught me. And uh, so the, the, you know, things like that have come into class. And then when I got really interested in spay casting, I started trying to analyze spay casting and trying to come up with, like any instructor, I guess, when you're an instructor, you try and find better ways to teach. So I try and find metaphors or terminologies or, or something that that makes it easier to for people to learn. So, I've, yeah, of course, I've come up with my own things and I, like everybody else has. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's great advice, especially for us because I, uh, Mitch and Alda do instruct at times for, you know, uh, the beginners and to develop like a, 
you know, fundamentals versus, you know, this is how you should do it is definitely like a great way of, um, great advice for teaching for sure. Yeah. Cause I'm hard to do when you're a youngster. You don't realize that. Yeah, exactly. Cause I, I'm still awkward caster, but man, do I f- let that thing fly? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? It, what do you think it takes to make like a good teacher? Like when it comes to casting? Um, I think, well, obviously you gotta have patience. My dad, my, my dad actually had, so one of the early things he taught me when, um, so my life, when I left school at 16, I was going to be an Air Force pilot. And then my dad said, hey, you can go to school for another five years or you can uh, teach fly fishing with me and I'll hire you. So there was no brainer. So one of the first bits of advice he gave me, he said, there's no such thing as a stupid student as a stupid instructor. And so he made me think that, well, that's pretty good advice. You know, you, there's always a way to teach somebody something. And if you if it doesn't work one way with an analogy, then you try a different way. You try hands-on, you try video, you try descriptive, you, you, know, you try different ways of teaching. So I think the most valuable advice is to understand that you're the idiot if you can't teach, not the person. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was a good thing. You've got to have patience, of course, because there are some people who are very slow to learn and learn don't learn the way you teach. And so you have to have patience that um, with these people. And I think you've got to be proud. You've got to be proud to be a teacher, not just consider it. Um, oh, I'm getting paid for this. So, okay, he's making some bad casts. I'll just let it fly because my lesson ends in half an hour. And that's fine. You've got to be proud to teach and proud of the results you get. Yeah, absolutely. That's an amazing way to put it for sure. Yeah, teaching can often be hard. Like, do you ever remember a time where you just, someone just didn't get it? Like, have you ever kind of gotten frustrated with it? Or oh, yeah, of course. You know, as, as again, mostly as a kid, um, when I I didn't have patience and I didn't understand there was different ways to teach. So I've, I've, I think I've matured a bit more, and I've I've got to a point I believe where um, I don't get frustrated. That I, I mean, I I can compartmentalize people, so I know that. There is some guy who isn't, I'm teaching who is never going to make 130-foot casts, and nor does he want to. That's fine. I can embrace that. Yeah. I, my job is to make him fishable and enjoy the game of casting and see that casting is more than just a way of getting a fly to a fish. And so I, I, can, I can have different expectations of people now, and I think that I didn't in the past. Of course, in the past, I, I obviously get frustrated and drink plenty of alcohol as a result. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you started working for your dad, and you were uh, you were you were teaching, and you were doing those things. How did you end up getting uh, working with uh, Rio? Oh, you know, life's got these paths. Uh, obviously, it's opportunities. Sometimes you're lucky enough to take the right opportunity, and sometimes you're not. Um, I guess it, and these paths are. I think they're opened by people you meet. I mean, I I had taught. To keep it very simple, I taught a guy a long time ago in the 80s. Um, his name is Bo. Uh, and I taught this chap called Bo to Spaycast. And Bo was fishing, coincidentally, a couple of years later on the Dean in BC with uh, with Jim. Jim was fishing at the time. He didn't have Rio. And Bo was doing these Spaycasts. And Jim said, hey, what's that? That's pretty cool. I want to learn that thing. And where'd you learn? And Bo said, oh, I learned from this Englishman called Simon. And so Jim got in touch with me. We conversed for a little bit. He wanted to get into spay casting, so we kind of just conversed about spay casting in the the old days of of snail mail, of course, and a few phone conversations. And then in '95, I went out to fish in BC. I was hosting a trip for a a British company, and I I went out a week early and and just fished with Jim. And he and I hit it off, and we spay cast. And uh, at the end of that, we kind of agreed to do dual classes. So he would. put together groups of classes. He had just started Rio by then. So he put together some classes through various fly shops that worked with him and would hire me to come over and teach those classes with him. And it it kind of worked out. And he got to a point where he said, if you ever need a a real job, then just let me know because I'd love to have you working for Rio. So uh, when I got to the point where I wanted a real job, (laughs) which is when I got married, my wife said, you can't spend four months of your life in, in Argentina guiding every year. Um, you got to get a proper job. So I contacted Jim, and he said, "Yeah, absolutely. Offer still stands. Come on out." So I did. That's awesome. That's such a cool way to start. Yeah, How did you? Cool. So when you started at Rio, what were you? What were you doing? Other than you know, you were teaching and things like that. But what else were you working on? Um, I think that was a good question. Jim obviously, Jim has a knack of of 
finding people that I think uh, and encouraging people to. Um, that's a good question. To be a jack of all trades, but to help help the company. I mean, when I started with Rio, I, I mostly did the shows, and his uh, his concept and thought process was if you can get a good caster um, to do casting demonstrations, I guess people associate that with the brand and you mentioned the brand so I was doing a lot of the shows and doing casting demonstrations and standing on there talking about the products and um, started off with some early marketing things there talking about uh, how the lines would work I mean I had an understanding of gear and casting and so that contributed and Jim I didn't know anything about gear design and so Jim over the course of a couple of years evolved me into designing some fly lines for Rio and uh, and, and casting lines and so kind of evolved through that from through marketing and line design and shows and demonstrations and talks club talks things like that oh that's awesome so at that time was rio considered to be um, like an innovative company uh, in the fly fishing world fairly i mean i moved over initially in 99 and by that time Jim was actually had built a fly line factory pre pre ninety six. All the Rio fly lines were made by Cortland to Jim's design, and then in ninety six he he decided to bite the bullet and just make his own lines because he couldn't get what he wanted from uh, Cortland or he couldn't get priority obviously because Cortland making their own lines. Uh, so he decided to make his own fly lines. And so by the time I joined him, um, I was definitely he was already making fly lines, and so that was a. That was nice that we had a factory there. We could churn out some fly lines and, and make a few taper tweaks and, and cast them and see if they were diabolical or they worked and, and learn that way. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, just I love the idea of just like uh, starting my making my own fly line because there's just nothing that's like working for me in the market. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, it's such a bold thing to do. So I guess have you seen like um like have you seen fly lines sort of change over the years? Like what have some, what have been some of those big innovations or some of those big changes um, to fly lines since you started? Well, the the biggest um, change I, I guess so how Rio got into to fly lines into shops was making what a lot of spay anglers know of is the, a line called the wind cutter so the wind cutter was a mm -hmm. the first line designed for spay casting uh, and before the wind cutter it was all double tapers and mm -hmm. and those are hard and so people got, spay was just becoming a conversational piece and so rio got into fly shops by having this wind cutter line and then um jim's uh, entrepreneurial ideas and skill and innovation decided that well if it works with spay lines let's make a couple of different trout fly lines um so we made a wind cutter trout line and it was different from your regular weight forward and it had what's called a compound taper and a compound taper is really a taper that i, I would guess made things change in the fly world fly line world the ability to make compound tapers and compound tapers are just multiple steps it's very hard to describe without an image, but a regular weight forward is a, is a line that's got a, if you start at the leader end, it's got a front taper, then it's got a level fat section, then it's got a back taper, and then it's the running line. So that's your original weight forward. And compound tapers were, were the first changes in line where you could take that level fat section and add a fat bit to that level section or a thin bit to that level section and create multiple different weight sections within a fly line. And that would influence the line design. That would influence the shape of the line and, and the, the end result of the line. Uh, and nobody really thought about that before. And so really kind of, that was Jim's philosophy to create these more niche lines. And, and I think that's where it came in. And a lot of that came about through the, the fly line machinery developing from, again, without imagery and videos and pictures, it's hard to describe, but fly line tapers were controlled in the early days of PVC through rotating cams. And these cams would rotate. They had a V-notch in them. And these cams would rotate to a, a diameter you wanted the fly line to be. And the V-notch would be that diameter. And the fly line would run through that and create a taper. And you could never create sophisticated tapers with it. But anyway, long story short, nowadays, lines are, uh, tapers are controlled by a, a variable die, variable orifice that can... Um, can make uh, in an inch you can make something like 5,000 changes in an inch now so they're very technical 
Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite things, I think, is, um, I know it's a simple thing, but just having those color gradients that show you where, you know, the sections of the tapers are in your fly line, like, especially with spay. Yeah, that's been great, right? Oh, it's so handy to have the, those little cues of where, mm-hmm. where you should line your, have your line in your rod to load it properly and all that stuff. But, like, with, with that stuff in yes. mind, yeah, it's like, how what kind of, um, what steps, I guess, go into designing a line? Um, how do you go about making a new line? Well, that is, uh, I mean, that's a good point. So, I mean, that's now become the norm in fly lines. It's very hard. I mean, if I look at any fly line these days, it's a single color. I look at it and go, A, I don't like the look of it. It doesn't, yeah. look, it doesn't appeal to me. And B, I've got used to using the color changes for head length and loading and stuff like that. And I think a lot of people have. So that's that was an evolution in fly line manufacturing processes, the ability to use multiple colors of of dye, um, basically PVC, to create multiple color lines. So that was a good step. Um, and that really started developing probably in the very early 2000s that came into fly line being, whether it was made by Rio Cole and Scientific Anglers, all the line companies started to evolve down that route of multiple color fly lines. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, that was probably a good change. Um, 2000, I remember when we came out with the Rio Grande, it was the first specialty fly line we came out with that actually fly shops and consumers bought it was a very good selling line from day one and that was 2001 um and that was just a green color line and we added a yellow color to it maybe two or three years later when we started experimenting with these two color fly lines yeah it's still it's still a really good seller um um, Aldo and I worked at, at the fly shop uh, Drift in downtown Toronto, and the Rio Grande is still like a line that's uh, sell on a regular basis yeah, uh, I, I mean, you're right. The, the Grand is still a very popular line. It's uh, it's got well. It's in a well-established position. People talk about the Grand, and 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 it's a very easy casting taper. It's a it's a whole line size heavy, so it casts well. It's an easy loader. Um, so it's a great no nonsense fly line, and it still is. And it and we can't drop it because it still sells. It's still our probably third best-selling line. What's the first and the second? Just uh, be curious. Um, in the trout world, the Rio Gold is by hands down our best-selling line. Uh, and then that's a good question. What would be our second best-selling line? I don't have the numbers. I would have to say our second best-selling trout line, which would be the trout category is massively bigger than saltwater and spay say most of the lines you sell in the world uh, we sell worldwide 75% of those are trout lines so you're never going to create a spay line or a saltwater line that's going to get close to touching trout line sales um, so they're going to all be trout lines the top three gold, grand, trout LT probably the three and I'm not sure which order the second and third would be in that's interesting. So how do you how do you so I guess the color gradients on the lines to show the different tapers it comes uh, from like a sort of just a need to sort of have a little better indication on the water. But when you come when you're deciding to make a new line, like what are some of the things you guys first consider? That's a long process. Yeah, um, no, I imagine a long answer. Yeah, if, well, simply if you. If you're designing a, a, a brand new line for something, obviously there's a somebody has come up with this request for a line. Let's take, for example, the lines we come up with this year. So we've come up with a whole bunch of jungle lines for the tropics. So let's use those as an example and run through the process of that. We were starting to get lots of requests for lines to take down to fish for Dorado and peacock bass and stuff like that. So the first thing is you analyze the environment to gives you an idea of what do we need a tropical line? Do we need a cold water line? Down there in the jungle, you need a tropical line, so you don't want a line that's going to be limp and sticky. So the first thing we ha- knew is we'd have to have a certain type of core and a certain type of coating to create that. And then um, our head of design, Marlin, went down on a couple of trips to fish there and experience the, um, the fishery and, and see what kind of flies are being cast down there, what kind of distance you're casting, are you fishing from a boat, are you wade fishing? And so that sets up the parameters of the tapers of the line. Casting big flies means you need a heavier line than normal. So if it's an eight-weight rod, you actually want to create a line that's probably a nine or a nine and a half in terms of weight. So there's mass in the line to cast the big flies. Um, that particular fishery required short front tapers because you're fishing again some fairly large flies. So it, it sets the parameters of your tapers. Uh, if you're fishing on a river, you might need to throw a mend in there. So maybe that means you need to have a longer back taper and a longer head to facilitate throwing a mend. So there's there's parameters that 
are set um, to, to create the end result of a fly line. And it basically is experimenting with these, going to these fisheries and targeting the, the species and, and, and putting all these parameters down in notes and just saying, well, here's what we need. And then making samples, taking them down, fishing them. And um, once you've dialed in the, the formulas and the coatings and the cores and the tapers, and this last thing you start to do is dial, down, dial in the colors. The, what are, what's a good color that... The fish, does it need to be a camo color that the fish can't see? Does it need to be a bright color because you're you're, you're targeting, you're, you want to see your cast and therefore you need to see a fly line? So it's just kind of trial and error. It's called product testing. It's the best part of my job. Yeah, yeah it sounds like the best <laughs> no, part. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with all that innovation, I guess, too, and Rio's been a real leader in that over the last, you know, year, few, well, several years, I would probably say over a decade. What do you think is next in the, in the world of line innovation? Like, is it a matter of just continuing to, to push the boundaries? It is. I mean, the R&D team, of course, are constantly... Um, striving to create new core materials, new chemistry for plastics, um, new floating materials that make lines float higher, new durable things that can make lines longer. So I think we've not exhausted because there's always going to be fisheries like jungle fishing has become a thing. Redfish in the Gulf became a, a big thing three to four years ago, maybe something like that. So that fishery started to get really popular, so we developed winter redfish lines. Now the jungle thing is becoming popular, so we developed the jungle lines. So gradually, fisheries evolve, and and people target these fisheries, and so we need product to fish for these fisheries. So design-wise, you don't. there's not a lot that can change in design-wise because you, you're, you're pretty limited to... A short front taper, a mid-long length front taper, a long front taper. You're limited to a short back taper, a mid back taper, a long back taper. You know, you're limited to certain things within the design. So fisheries will evolve and create new fly lines, but where the real innovation is going to be is when new chemistry comes in with new cores and new coatings and new, as I said, longer lasting lines or slicker lines or higher floating lines. And that's just a chemistry thing that the R&D team are you know, playing around with. So since being at Rio, do you have any projects that really stand out to you as like a memorable, fun one that you just that you just absolutely loved? Oh, I, I love fly fishing and I love fly casting, so I'll take it all. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take any, uh, I'll do anything else and, and go and cast a fly line and go and test fly lines. I mean, nothing particularly stands out. I, I, I've loved my part in developing all the lines we do. You know, we've got, we've got a really really good team these days of, of passionate fly fishermen that do the designs i don't do much of the designs um anymore i do still do majority of the spade designs but the single hand stuff for the rest of the team and we usually go together as a group and go down to like last december we went down to louisiana to, to, to test some new prototypes of some redfish lines and that's great i mean i love those things a group of six of us just went down and spent a week targeting big redfish so that that part i guess is 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 good just to fish with the lads and, and go out and fish and, and yeah yeah targeting, cast. targeting big redfish how was that how'd you guys do oh, it was epic <laughs> yeah. it was stupid <laughs> <That sounds amazing. laughs> we had one day where well i mean most of the days are your typical days we just have one day where everything was right and and the wind dropped back and chris our new r&d guy and i just hit it right we had it's 17 reds in that day landed in the boat, and Jesus. one was six pounds. The other 16 were all over 24 pounds. What? And then we had five over 30. Oh my God, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, all sight fishing to reds, so it was it was pretty epic. Yeah, seriously. So, so you guys traveled the world testing all those lines, or the, where is the um, the next frontier? Because now you guys are developing jungle uh, fly fishing, but what's next after that? It's a good question. You know, it's um, I, we try and not invent a frontier. <laughs> we can go there yeah. and test lines. It's coming in very tempting. Oh, let's go. And, uh, I think tiger fish are going to be really big. Let's go down to South Africa and spend some time on the Zambezi, Zambezi and Zimbabwe yeah, and, and Zambia and <laughs> you know things like that. We try and re- rein that in, and because I, I don't think the bosses would be happy if we created a fly line, spent twenty grand testing it and sold three samples <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah yeah it's gotta be strategic so 
Yeah, and, and then we do quite a bit with our regional uh, or our national regional, if you like, whatever you want to call it, distributors. So, for example, using tiger fish as an example, I did go to South Africa last year into the country of Zambia and fished for four days down there, and that was to work with our distributor in South Africa. They wanted tiger fish lines. So it's not a product we come out with in Rio and you, and you can buy in in the um, US or Canada, but our South African distributor said, look, we really need some lines of tiger fish. This is a big fishery for us. Can you come down and, and, and put some time in it and, and tell us what we need to do? So that's another product development, but it doesn't come out as a, as a, as a Rio product in a, worldwide. It's a Rio product in South Africa. But so I don't know where the next frontier is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jungle fishing is interesting. Have you ever done any jungle fishing? No, I've never done it. No, that's uh, we had a lucky sod called Marlin who went down and did all that product testing. That was <laughs> fell on his plate and off he went. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Did those trips is high on my list though. Oh man, yeah, they look amazing. You know, like the fish down. Oh there, yeah, it's just crazy. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, they they are that. So switching gears and talking a little bit more about spay fishing. So obviously you've seen spay sort of grow over the years. I think. I think, like you said, when you started spay fishing, it was just like a natural thing to pick up at the time because it was, uh, you know, it's what you guys did over there in, in England. But um, how have you seen spay fishing grow over the years? Well, I mean, European-wise, I don't think it has. I think if you look in the U.S. and Canada and um, places Argentina, Australia, places that are really foreign to Spay. The biggest evolution in Spay came when rods became and were developed for specific fisheries. You know, in the early days when I came out here, a Spay rod, salmon rod as we would call them, were 14 foot 9 weights, 15 foot 10 weights, 16 foot 11 weights. And there was no wonder these rods never got popular and this style of fishing never got popular in the US and Canada because there's not a fishery that those rods are going to work in. So people would look at them and say, I don't need that and therefore I don't need spay casting. And so once rod manufacturers started to create 12 foot 8 weights and 11 foot 7 weights and switch rods and stuff like that, then there became a rod for the species and the size of the fisheries that are in the US and Canada and people started to buy them. So those were really the big changes when gear started to be more tailored to the, the fisheries that are available in America and, and in Canada. And of course then people started going, oh, okay, I can use these rods and oh, this is quite a fun, fun way of casting and fishing. And, and so they would start to buy them and that's really where the, where the um, I think spay really got its first foothold and then fly lines got shorter and heavier and easier to cast and suddenly spay casting didn't require two or three weeks of steady instruction and three or four years of hard practice to become a decent spay caster, which it was in the early days when it was double tapers. Lines became short and very easy to cast, and so suddenly people can make spay casts. Um, and then it became a fashion, I guess. It became a, it became a buzz. So yeah. everybody talks about it, and therefore everybody gets into it. And Not everybody, but, you know, in terms of compared yeah. to in the early days. Yeah. No, for sure. And then... In terms of like just fly fishing in general, have you seen fly fishing, the sport of fly fishing, change over the years? Well, I have, yes, absolutely, and and not. I don't know if it's a good way or a bad way. the The problem, the problem comes from um, we as a as a line company, like all line companies, try and develop a, a fly line that is going to sell a lot. And these days, the lines that sell the most are the easiest casting fly lines that you can make. So our Rio Grands and Rio Golds, which are front-loaded, slightly heavier lines, they're, they're, they're selling far more lines than in the early days because they are much easier to cast. So a lot more fly fishermen, can, kind of like the Spay example, can pick up a fly rod and go to a, a free fly casting class in their local fly shop in an evening and have two or three hours over a course of maybe a couple of weeks on their local uh, football fields and cast a line and go, oh, this isn't too hard. Um, and so I'm going to take it up because fly casting is not that hard. So because gears become, fly lines particularly, rods also, of course, become much more responsive, much lighter, um, much easier to cast. So the gear has become much easier to perform the act of fly casting and therefore more people have got into it because of the performance of that. Yeah, for sure. 
No, it's interesting to see how it's changed, you know, in that in that respect. What about you've so you've traveled all over as Gab was saying. Do you have like what what's your favorite freshwater to fish in the world? Mm, I mean, if I any time people ask me that, I always say the Dean. Just calls. Yeah. <laughs> I love the Dean. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I wouldn't say the steelhead's necessarily my favorite species in the world. I mean, I love steelhead. I just don't have a favorite. I love it. I love them all. But I love the Dean. I love the aggression of the fish in the Dean. Yeah. Um, I've been going to Alaska the last couple of summers, and, and I've had an absolute brilliant time catching huge kings in Alaska up in the Connecticut. I think that's an incredible fishery, swinging for kings and just getting... 30, 35 pound fish that fight and run hundreds and hundreds of yards and jump like crazy. Um, so that's another one I put up there. Uh, but then again, I just love my, I, I love the Henry's Fork for fishing for technical trout with a dry fly. I love the Missouri for, for fishing streamers to the bank in the fall. I mean, I like fishing. I like, as long as I'm making a technical cast. I've got to say, I do like the technical aspect. I don't go to catch numbers of big fish. I go to try and find a technical aspect. Right. So when you I like that part, when you approach like a new water body, then like, is there, how do you, what do you do when you get to a new river? Is there a lot of technical stuff that comes out for you? Oh, no, no. I mean, I'm like any angler really who's semi experienced. I'll, I'll go and look at it and, and try and read the water and see, I mean, if it's a trout fish, I'll try and see if there's fish rising. I would much rather fish dry flies or soft tackles than anything else. And that those are fish, a lot better when you have rising fish. So I'll see if, I'll try and find rising fish, of course, and then if not, then I'll I'll look for a nice little riffle I can swing a soft tackle through. I'm, I'm a big fan of swinging soft tackles for trout, so I'll, there's a certain type of water that's good for that, which I'll try and look for for trout. For steelhead, I'm, I'd love waking a dry fly or a muddler or a skater through, so I'm trying to find the right kind of water for that, uh, the right kind of light for that, the evening light or morning light. So there's nothing technical about it. I'll just like anybody, I'll just try and read the water and try and tailor in the pools and areas of water I fish through what I enjoy as a fisherman. I don't enjoy fishing nymphs and indicators. I hate it. And so I'm not going to go and find a seam. I, I will leave that to other people who love that and catch their own species of fish that way and plenty of fish that way. So I'll find the water that just makes me happy. Yeah, for sure. And now do you, do you ever go out with guides or do you prefer to just kind of like fish on your own and just figure it out? yourself uh, yeah that's a good question i mean i go out with a lot of guides and um that's definitely one aspect because you can learn so much from guides and certainly in certain environments i, I do a lot of as much saltwater fishing as i can and i love saltwater fishing and you need a guide because i don't have a boat and uh, i don't know the water so you, you have to have guides for that yeah. uh i love guides and gillies if i go out to scotland for example for a river i like going out with a ghillie and him showing me the water in the pools um, but I get my most kicks just whether I'm on a bonefish flat or a salmon river in Scotland or a steelhead river in, in BC, I much prefer to be left alone and try and fathom it out. I'll probably catch a lot less fish doing it, but I like that. I like the thought process that, I, hey, I've done something here. I wasn't told to do this. I did something and caught something as a result exactly. or didn't. Yeah. There's always some merit into doing it yourself and figuring it out. Yourself. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So in Scotland, uh, just out of curiosity, like what what are some of your favorite places in Scotland to to go fishing? Oh, rivers. I mean, I, I, I've spent a lot of my life fishing lakes. You, you tend to do that when you live in England. Yeah. Uh, you fish a lot of lakes and reservoirs, but I, I I've always preferred rivers. Um, and if I'm river fishing in Scotland, and I like the casting, the game of casting a spay rod, so I I try and find rivers in Scotland that I can fish a spay rod and do some spay casting for, and that generally means it's Atlantic salmon. So um, my mum lives up in near the town of Perth in Scotland. That's on a river called the Tay, so I fish the Tay quite a bit. Um, I fish. I still go up to the spay. I think the spay is all hallowed ground because, of course, it's just legend for the, the, the name of the cast. It comes from river, so everybody should fish the spay. And there really isn't many rivers that are as beautiful as the lower 35 miles of the river spay for fly water. Yeah. So I fish the spay, um, the tweed, the tay, but then I, I love it. Some of the small little spate rivers, the West coast spate rivers, or some of the tributaries of the, the Bewley and rivers, the Conan and the Carron and some of the rivers that flow north up into in Scotland there. 
so yeah, I, again, I don't really mind. We definitely, after talking to you, we definitely need to get in contact with Scotland's uh, tourism industry. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Selfishly, I ask. Yeah. I might be making a trip out to Scotland actually in the spring, and so I'm just so curious, like where to go fishing there, because I've heard it's all private, kind of expensive water. No, you've heard totally wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, some of it is, fantastic. some of it is, um, but it's evolved for the better, for the much better over the last probably ten years. There's a, an incredible database website called FishPal. Yeah, and FishPal is. Uh, have you come across it? No, no. What is it? Oh, okay. I just, when you said yeah, I thought you'd have FishPal is just about the best resource you can have. You can't imagine a better way of finding fishing in Scotland, yeah. and it's starting to move to England and Wales and Ireland now. But basically, it's just a website, and you click on the region or the river you are, where you want to fish, and it lists a number of beats, and you can see what beats are available for certain times of year. You can see the catch records. You can book the fishing. You can book ghillie. You can book accommodation from it. Um, you can see the price of it. Uh, so. It's, in the old days, you had to book everything years in advance and, and keep your slot. And if you lost your slot, then, then somebody else took it and they had the first choice. Now you can just book this stuff online. You can see the price. You can see the catch returns. You can uh, find the beat. You can find the pools. It's, an, it's a phenomenal resource. And if you're going to Scotland, you just go to fishpal.com or .co.uk. I can't remember which it is. And dig around, and you'll find out how easy it is. Yeah, fishpal.com. I'm looking at it right now. It looks amazing. Yeah. Really. yeah. Oh, it's super handy. Wow. So Mitch, it is amazingly it. handy. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. It's still all private in the UK, and that, that's the difficult thing. You know, over here in the US, I've, I love and I've come accustomed to the fact that most rivers I can just go up and go, go down at a public access point and start fishing. And because you don't have that in the UK, it is intimidating to, to people who don't know the, the system in the UK because if you go over without any planning and you find, oh, I'm, I'm in Glasgow, let me go and fish a, a river um, over there. Let's go fish, say, for example, the River Leven. That's a nice little salmon river. Um, how do I do that? I don't know how to do that. Well, and that's the difficulty of, of British fishing is that it's very hard to do that on the day. But if you have a resource like this fish pal thing and you can say, oh, I'm going over next week or I'm going over next April and I'm going to be in Glasgow. And you look at the map of Glasgow and you see the rivers that are around there and you say, okay, what's going to fish in April? And you look at April and you see, oh, these haven't caught anything in the last 50 years in April. Oh, this one has. So that resource has become has made it extraordinarily efficient for people now to, um, to go and fish, obviously, places like that. Yeah, for sure. No, that's amazing. So we do a little segment on the show, actually, that I think could be kind of fun right now called, uh, it's like the dumbest title ever. It's called Mitchie's Fishies 5. It's stupid. It rhymes with my name, kind of, so we kind of just run with it. But it's basically just five, mm -hmm. it's just five sort of questions about um, your uh, fly fishing um, life, just sort of broader passion type questions. So maybe we could talk about those a little bit. Okay. Cool. So this first question, and you've sort of talked a little bit about this already, um, but um, it's what is your favorite fish and why? Huh. Well, do we talk about it? Because I don't, actually don't have an answer. I mean, right now I I can't say because the first thing that leaps into my mind is a permit and then a, maybe that's re quickly replaced by a tarpon and then, uh, I don't know, an Atlantic salmon up on the spay in May, a Dean Steelhead, a Connectop King. I don't know. I don't have one. So you like the strength. You like the... the the fight. That's I mean, the, I like the difficulty. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 way over anything else. So everything would be, I would hate to go to a pond full of stock rainbows and, and haul in 20 car, fish in 20 casts. That's just, even though I like a rainbow, where if you get to a rainbow trout in the Henry's Fork that's on the ranch there and it's a technical feeder and it's a 23-inch fish when there's 15 microcurrents between you and that, then a rainbow trout would come in because it's feeding on size 18 betas or something. But then you take that same trout and put it in a stocked pond where it's just eating pellets and it's going to glug down anything you throw it. Well, I would have no interest in the trout. So it's, I don't think there's an answer to a species. I think it's the situation of the species. Right, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, actually. Uh, it sort of actually just kind of it made me think of something else, too, just about saltwater fishing. Yeah, like you were saying, permit and tarpon are huge species for you. Where, where, where are some of your favorite places to go saltwater fishing? Oh, my favorite's got to be Cuba. 
Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. What a what a what a unbelievable place that is. Both in terms of the way you're treated as a as a as a person by the locals or not the fishermen in particular, but just by the locals. They are wonderful people. Um but also because the the island is this basically the entire country of Cuba is a, a marine park and and marine reserve and, and so there's no commercial fishing and in most of the places there's not even recreational fishing allowed most of the places there's a couple of uh, companies that have worked with the, the cuban government to preserve the fisheries and have licenses to take a limited number of anglers fishing and so you go out there and you have these pristine flats that are pretty untouched i mean when i was down there in may last year we had these me and my partner we had 10 square miles of, of flats to ourselves. There wasn't a single, nobody was fishing it. No, nobody else fishes it. No commercial, no recreational, no natives, no locals. And so you have this incredible fishery. Um, and, and so I, I think Cuba, I, I absolutely have loved, loved being fishing in Cuba. Since, uh, since I, you work in, uh, in uh, Washington, is it tough to get to Cuba if you like, kind of want to? No. No, no. I mean, nowadays you can fly. I mean, I flew from... Seattle to uh, Atlanta and Atlanta straight to to uh, Havana. Oh, okay, very cool. Simon, it's funny you say that about Cuba. I had the exact experience there. It is wonderful. It's like untapped resources. Like the mm. um, the mangroves, they just look so fresh, like bright green. It's like no one's been there before. And the locals are yeah. fantastic. Exactly. It's not crisscrossed by prop tracks and ripped up by yahoos and Ski, uh, but, you know, water. What are the water ski do things called? Um, <laughs> yeah, ski yeah, yeah, jet jet skis. Jet skis yeah. No, it's I it's uh, it's it's fabulous. So, if you could fish, I mean, this is an interesting little segue into it. But if you could fish anywhere in the world right now, where would you go and why? Is it somewhere I haven't been to, or somewhere I have been to? Either one. Either one would be cool. Right now, at the exact date, so I mean, if I said October now, like today's date, yeah. I, it wouldn't be, you know, I mean, that limits it because not a lot of fisheries are going to be good at this time of year. But if I could, if I just could teleport myself to somewhere right now, um, it would probably, yeah, it'd probably be a permit flat somewhere. Or yeah. Somewhere maybe back to Cuba again. Yeah, somewhere nice coffee. and warm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for the third question what is your best fishing memory mm. I know this is a big one like big one. dig deep it's uh, obviously yeah. a, a long fishing career you've had and uh, probably tons of amazing memories and stories but any any unique ones that come to mind well I mean there's yeah there's always a few standout ones um probably one that stands out the most at the moment and that's because it's fairly recent was um my first big chinook big king i caught on the uh connect talk last year it was yeah i mean i've caught kings for a long time in in various pacific northwest rivers that are like the dean for example they're kind of dogged slow things and the, this one being thai lice fresh fish was onto my backing 300 yards away jumping and gone absolutely ballistic before i could even wade ashore i mean it was and that was because this is one of the most gorgeous fish i've ever seen just bright chrome bright sea lice very powerful aggressive fish um that one sticks in my mind but that's, maybe that's because it's pretty recent uh, my first permit god that thing sticks in my mind my first half and I, I again i i don't know i think I enjoy all of it so much. It's if I just think about any day's fishing, it'll always have a highlight in there somewhere. Yeah. Do you remember the story behind your first permit? Um. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. That was that was. I know, when was that? That'd be like two thousand and nine, maybe ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one. Down in the Keys, I was fishing with uh, one of our Rio guys down there, and uh, we were doing a, um, a a gear testing trip and. We had this guide called Dale Perez, nicknamed Eagle Eyes. I think most guides are called that by everybody. But anyway, he was down there, and I just remember he'd seen this permit. Marlin had caught a fish, about 20-pound permit, and 
David spotted the fish and it was my turn and he, he pulled like crazy against the wind because it was upwind of him so he put in a ton, ton of effort and he's one of those shouting guides he said if you mess this cast up after all this work he said I am going to come down and take that rod off you and snap it and he got kind of ready, ready. I, don't you dare mess this thing up and I went, oh great thanks for the pressure and <laughs> somehow the cast land, landed right and the fish turned around and I, I remember that I'd missed a a permit shot earlier because a permit went was following my my crab pattern and uh, when I was retrieving it and I when I'm trout fishing and a fish follows it and doesn't take it I'll either speed up or stop I'll do do things like that and so I did one or the other and the permit bolted away and the guy just ate me up saying you are an absolute <laughs> spastic what the hell are you doing doing that you don't ever do that with permit so anyway having been shouted at and warned about being shouted at, I made the right cast and I was the right retrieve and I hooked this permit and I landed this permit. It was a nice, it's still my biggest today. It was a 25 pound fish. So it was a decent sized permit. That's a huge, but no, huge it's clear as day. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. What, it, what's it like? Like what, it, like I've heard so many stories about permit and they're tricky to find and catch. And what do they fight like? Like what's the, what's catching a permit feel like? Oh, they're just hard fighting. I mean, they're, you know, a lot of people like permit because they are very, very difficult fish mm -hmm. that will refuse you do everything right. It will still refuse you 99 times out of 100. Um, so I think that's the, the, the love of permit. I mean, they're, they're not, I don't think they're particularly harder fighter than a tarpon. Uh, again, depends on the size. You get a 15-pound tarpon and a 15-pound permit, the permit will drag it backwards. But if you get your average tarpon of, a, say, a 70-pound tarpon, they're brilliant fish because they jump. They're so acrobatic. Yeah, the yeah, sun is yeah. glistening on their silver scales. Uh, I mean, I love the fight of a tarpon too. I think the permit challenge is just the fact that it's so hard to catch that when you get one, mm -hmm. now you feel pretty good about it. You've done everything right. Yeah, for sure. Tarpon, that's like, oh, man. I... I heard from many people, and even like online, um, I think the yelling part of a guide for permit it seems to be kind of a wonder of one of the characteristics. Yeah, eh? they, they <laughs> seem to be kind of, they seem to be kind of like a hard ass kind yeah. of guide, eh? Well, luckily I've fished with some really good guides that are just chill and relaxed about it, and um, have no, put no pressure on you. The guides, it's like guides all over the world. Some days you're going to get people who are ticked off and some days they're always going to be ticked off and some days they're going to be relaxed. So I, I've, I've had both aggressive guides and, and passive guides. And um, i, I got to say, a guide starts shouting at me. I don't take that too kindly. I don't, that's not how I, I don't like being shouted at. I'm trying my best, so piss off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, I think I'd be a little bit like that too. Aldo, Aldo yells at me all the time, and I never take it. <laughs> <laughs> it's different of me to mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have yes, to take yes, it. yes. <laughs> Do you remember the story behind your first tarpon? Actually, just like I, 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 we've been talking a lot about tarpon over the last year, and we want to go catch tarpon so bad after hearing stories. Do you remember what it was like catching that first that first one? Oh yeah, I mean that was. Again, that's it's like your first trout, your first salmon, your first steelhead, your first everything, first carp. I mean, I remember every, the first details of all. My first, my first tarpon was actually a real, quite a small one, about 15 pound, just a little guy caught in Belize. Um, out, we out, out there making some films, and a tarpon swam by, and I cast a tarpon fly to it, and I caught it, and that was my first tarpon. Yeah, I say it wasn't a big one, it wasn't a great fight, but it was, it was still just stunning. Uh, the one I caught after, I, I have better memories of because the um, first of all it was a it was a pretty long cast. It was out, it was about a I don't know an 85 foot cast, and the fly landed somehow close to the fish, and uh, it was a decent fish, about 80 pounds. Um, but what I remember about it is when we've got the, the fish in, uh, the guy said, "Oh, you jump out! I want to take a photo of you holding it. We're in some shallow flats here, and I want to take a photo of you holding it." And I I jumped out and found out I was in eight foot of water. <laughs> it wasn't shallow at all. Oh, wow. And he's saying, well, push the tarpon up, hold the tarpon above your head. And <laughs> he didn't realize this thing called displacement. You know, you push 80 pounds up and I go down. <laughs> I don't go up. The fish doesn't go up. I go down. So I have this hilarious photo of me like trying to breathe with my face underwater, trying to hold a tarpon up. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh my God. So that, that's a good story. Yeah, I thought, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, so I remember that one. So this next question, number four, um, is a little broader, but it's just around 
why do you fly fish? So what, what is it about fly fishing that keeps you coming back to the river time and time again? Um, well, the first one's got to be probably what everybody says is it gives me a chance to get out from the day-to-day rigmarole of life and get to escape to somewhere that I enjoy being. I, I like countryside. I like being outside. I like the nature and environment of, of um, clean places. So fly fishing takes me to those clean places. So that's the first thing. Uh, and I like the... I am a casting addict. I mean, I absolutely love casting. I'll often, if nothing's happening, I'm just going to be casting. So I, 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 it's a way of me getting out. I can't do my nice casting on, on the fields because a lot of the casting involves the space stuff, and so the space stuff's got to have water. So it gets me out to some waters. As I said, they're, they're nice and scenic. It's a beautiful part of the world. It's usually a clean environment. It allows me to get into rhythm, and I, and I, I get into a, a zone of casting where I'm just, I, I can be out there casting for a couple of hours just, flowing and uh, yeah I like that part I like I like that part of just being lost in in my skill Um, I I have a I I kind of have this feeling that casting I said this in a video once and somebody did a video thing on me and and it it was a spur of the moment thing when one of these questions popped up and and they said a similar thing why do you go why do you like casting so much and I, I said, well, I like casting because that's the one thing I can control 100% yeah. is that I like that ability that I can control the casting. I can't control if a fish eats it. It's there or it's not there. It eats it or it doesn't eat it. I can do things to make that a better chance, but I'm absolutely 100% in control of my casting. And I like that. I like the fact that I'm in control of it. And so I can, be, I can make myself be better by practicing and casting. And I love that. Yeah, for sure. So for this fifth and final question um, of the Mitchie's Fishies Five, what fly pattern represents you best and why? <laughs> what fly pattern? Yeah. This is what we've, well, we've been asking this geez. one a lot. It's a, it's, it's a tough one. There's so many different flies, but I don't know. What, what, yeah. is, what fly represents you? Um... What fly would represent me? I don't know. Some just mess that you tied up at the vice and your kid kind of came in and added a bit of silk to it and said, hey, Dad, put that purple feather with that uh, green feather and everything clashes. I, uh, some homemade concoction that's just random and um, sporadic, I guess. I mean, there isn't a fly. I mean, flies seem to organized and neat to be me. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Oh, that's a great, that's, that's a great, great <laughs> And then actually, I kind of want to, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I kind of want to go back to the second question too and, and just ask if you could fish anywhere, any time of year um, for anything, what would that be? What, what choice would you make there? Uh, I, I would love, oh God, I don't know. I mean, right now, again, I would, I would, I would pop myself back over to Zambia and fish the Zambezi again for for tigers and um, I, I get, there was something very English and decadent about the the system they have out there. So you're in a boat and it's 42 degrees outside and you're just flagging and you're hot and they pull the boat ashore and and, and set up this linen this table with this linen and yeah, these wow. comfy chairs and pour out these gin and tonics that are freezing cold with lots of ice and lime and you're just sitting in air heat and this lovely smell of of Africa and these lo- this lovely light and maybe you've caught a couple of tiger fish but you know there's an elephant that's just walked past there and you can hear a, a lion roaring away and there's hippos on the bank and there's people watching out for crocodiles just so far different from the regular fishing that I, I do even though I take a gin and tonic or a whiskey with me when I'm fishing yeah, but that that was the most far far different experience of fishing I can recall having, just because of the perhaps because of the danger. I mean, literally, there's, there's elephants and tigers, not tigers, lions and elephants there, and there's hyenas there, and there's crocodiles there, and you know you can die very easily. Do you do you see a lot of crocodile fishing there, there on the Zambezi? Oh, like loads. You, you see them pass. Oh, loads. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Loads of crocs, loads of crocs, loads of hippos, masses of hippos. You. 
you know, hippos are the most nastiest things. Yeah, they're scary. I have a friend. You know, it was, it was really it, it, interesting. The, um, I was there with, as I mentioned, I was there with a distributor and and his one of his buddies had kind of organized this trip. And they have this cold plunge pool. So you get out, there's 42 degrees of heat yeah. uh, and you come back fishing. You just go into this little plunge pool and it's probably about three meters by three meters square um, of cold water. And it's about five feet deep and you just sit on this ledge and just cool off with another gin and tonic. It's great. But um, this this chap, um, Dimitri, who was this guy's friend, he was sitting there the last time he went. And why he was sitting in this this cold pool with it on his phone, an elephant came by and started drinking out of the pool he was just in. And he videos this, and there's this, like, for me, I would be going, oh my God, I'm gonna die. This elephant's <laughs> gonna whip me out by the trunk because I'm in its watering hole and just pull me in half. Yeah. And he got this video of this elephant just drinking out of the pool right next to him, the pool he's in. He's like, God's sakes, that's incredible. Oh and then God. he just walked away, like nothing happened? And then the elephant just walked away, yeah. That's yeah. a beautiful story. I would love to witness that. I think I would pull my pants. Yeah. <laughs> would you not be worried? Yeah, I, oh, say, I, I, I would not like to witness that. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to witness that if I knew that he was just going to like drink and walk by. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because my Precisely. buddy, I have a good friend um, who whose parents actually own a lodge on the Zambezi, and he's been trying to invite me over for the longest time to fish for, for a tiger trout. I did the logo for him tiger and everything. Fish. I should really get in touch with Sorry, tiger fish. I said tiger. Trout. God, yeah. Uh, but absolutely, you should. What are you waiting for? Exactly, and I think yeah, I think I need to. Call this is the right first time this. I've heard about this friend, <laughs> Simon. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing this for two years. <laughs> that's, that's because I offer these guys so many different uh, friends. You know, I have to hold. We I have to go. surprise them go. every time. What's man. it like catching tiger fish, Simon? You know, they're really special, spectacular fish. They don't have a long, sustained. Um, fight, but they're very, very acrobatic, and they jump two to three meters up in the air. I mean, when you hit them, obviously, you've, you've probably seen the photos of their teeth. They're really aggressive, toothy things. You've got to have wire. They live right by the bank structure, so they're a, t a technical fish to catch because you've got to land within four inches of the bank that you're casting to oh. because the fish hug the structure. So there's a technical cast aspect. Um, they hit it hard. As I said, they don't. Re I mean, I didn't get anything over about. Uh, I think the biggest one I had was maybe eight pounds, about four kilos, maybe if you're lucky. So I didn't get any beasts out there. But these things are so acrobatic. They and they're gorgeous coloring system, and their teeth and their faces just something again, some so so prehistoric and out of out of my norm. That it's just everything about that experience added up to one of the most incredible trips I've ever had. Yeah, that sounds insane. That sounds amazing. They look like an incredible fish. Mm. Mm. But as I said, don't expect to, to have a long sustain. Maybe the big ones do. Maybe these 10 kilo ones, these 20, 25 pound fish do have a, a harder, longer sustained fight. But um, certainly the acrobaticness of these things, just ferocious the way they jump around. And I'm sure, I know it's their, their, their natural features are these bared teeth. But when they jump out and their teeth are bared and they're looking at you, you think, oh, shoot, this thing's like actually... He's growling at me. <laughs> he wants to take a chunk out of me. Oh, man. That's amazing, yeah. No, I've seen pictures of, like, um, you fishing lures with just holes in them from, from these tiger fish. Yep. So crazy. Yep, yeah, they destroy your flies pretty damn quick. <laughs> yeah, you bet, yeah. So, um, yeah, speaking of uh, spay and, uh, and um, southern Ontario, you've come to a, a couple spay claves down here on the Grand River, eh? Yeah, yeah. Are you going to make your way down yeah. again for uh, for any other spay claves or spay fishing or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to work um, with our, our reps over there to try and get to one of the, the claves. The problem is that they seem to coincide with uh, an event that I'm usually at in, I think it's usually in May, isn't it, the, the, the grand one these days, is that right? Yeah, sometimes they have yeah. one in the fall as well, actually, so uh, it, I'm not sure. Oh, maybe it's the fall. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you're down uh, here, we'll have to... I can't recall... We'll have to go. We'll have to go spay fishing, Simon. We'd love to take you out. Yeah, well, of course we will. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Simon. Honestly, it's been amazing. Simon, thanks so much. All right. Yeah, no problem. Hey, yeah. lad. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Yeah. All right, okay. all right Simon. Great to meet bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Cheers now. Cheers. Well, we hope everybody enjoyed that show. Uh, we certainly had a lot of fun and learned a lot. Um, that's it for me, Mitch, Gab. Hey, right on, people. And Yelma. Yoma here signing off. Don't forget to reach us at the SoFly Crew on Instagram and Facebook. Again, that's at the SoFly Crew. 
Um, if you have any questions, concerns, or who our next guest should be, please email us at the SoFlyCrew at gmail.com. Um, also, you know, we have our website up, SoFly.ca. This is Yoma signing off. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Peace. Peace.